Good morning, everyone. We are going to finish up our series in community, part two. For those of you who are visiting us, typically we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. So next week we'll pick back up in the Gospel of Luke. We've been in Luke, I guess, for about nine months, and we've still got another year to go. So I'm excited. <laughs> so uh, Luke is the longest book of the New Testament, and um, it's been an exciting journey through the Gospel. So looking forward to that. Out of curiosity, how many of you brought your cell phones today? All right. Raise your hand. Okay. Well, there's an interesting new thing. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called nomophobia. Anybody ever heard of that? comes from psychology today. Nomophobia is the fear of being without your cell phone or not being within cell phone range. And I don't know if you've ever felt that, but uh, Lori and I realize we've, we suffer from nomophobia. And we're trying to make some corrections to it. But let me give you a few stats. 65% of adults in America, or two in three, two out of three people, they sleep with their cell phone or their cell phone next to their bed. If that's you, raise your hand. Okay. Cell phone within range. <laughs> um, one in five people said they would rather go without uh, shoes for a week than their cell phone without a week. Some teenagers have even said that they would rather lose their right pinky than to lose their cell phone. That's pretty extreme, right? Half of adults in America have never switched off their cell phone. I would call that an addiction, wouldn't you? Never turn off their cell phone. A full, a full 66% of adults would, would say suffer from nomophobia. Um, when they surveyed how many times a day did people look at their cell phone, once every 12 minutes or 80 times a day for the average American. <laughs> That's kind of shocking, isn't it? So when you, when you factor in that time, it's a little over two and a half hours just playing with your cell phone. Two and a half hours. So the next time you say, I don't have time, we know where it's at now. Most likely it's in your cell phone. One in ten adults look at their cell phone every four minutes. And, you know, to, to kind of flesh this out, how many of you have ever been to a restaurant and you see a family there and the entire family is looking at their device the entire time during dinner? How many of you have seen that? Some of you may be that family, right? So another example, next time you're at a stoplight, look over and see what the average driver is doing for that 20 seconds, checking their cell phone. So we live in a world where there's a new phenomenon called nomophobia. So to help you memorize, no obviously is no, and mo stands for mobile. So no mobile phobia. I'm afraid of being without my phone or being out of distance to my phone. So Lori and I, as we've realized and identified, we, we struggle with nomophobia. One thing we're doing to prevent this is one day a week on our Sabbath, which is Friday, we tend to put our cell phones away. And we, we check it a few times a day for emergency messages. But outside of that, we're trying to cure ourselves of nomophobia. And you're like, well, Timothy, what does this have to do with community? Well, I'm glad you're trying to make the connection of where we're going with this. Because we've often replaced meaningful relationships with mobile addiction. We replace real-life person interaction with being distracted on our cell phones. And I, I admit, I struggle with it, as do you. So how do we, in a world full of nomophobia, how do we have community? How do we connect again in meaningful ways? 
I'm so glad you're asking that question this morning. <laughs> Romans 12, and I've never done this. This is my, I'm going to my third year here at, at, at this church at Arden First, and I've never covered a whole chapter, and I'm, I'm not promising I'll get through it. But we're going to look through Romans 12, and we're going to try to cover the whole chapter. If we run out of time, I'll still give you the fill in the blanks. But Romans 12 is a chapter that fully describes what a fully surrendered Christian looks like. It describes what, if you follow these principles in Romans 12, community is going to excel. I mean, you talk about living in community and the one another's of the Bible. There's several one another's in this passage. So the big question we're going to ask today, are you fully giving yourself to God and others presently? And a secondary question that I just thought of in the past 24 hours, are you a Romans 12 Christian? Most of us would claim to be Christians in the church today, but are you a Romans 12 Christian? And we're going to talk about what that looks like. So let's, let's look at verse 1 and keep in mind as we're going through this passage, we're going to look at the context of community. How does this apply to the one another's at Arden First? So look at verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a what? Living sacrifice. Holy acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So today we're going to talk about eight actions of the Romans 12 Christian, or you could say the fully devoted Christian. Number one, the first action is this, live your life as a living sacrifice. Live your life as a living sacrifice. What is the problem with the living sacrifice? Does anybody know? It has a tendency to crawl off the altar. In the Old Testament, they would offer sacrifices daily, and once the sacrifice was offered, it was done because it was dead. But we live in the new covenant, the new promise from God. And instead of offering animal sacrifices, he said, I want you to offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God. How many of you have ever heard of Usain Bolt? Anybody watched him? He's famous for what? Being the fastest man alive. So he did the 100 meter run in less than 10 seconds. And they could not believe it. They were shocked at how fast he was. But I would propose to you it wasn't the 10 seconds that made him the fastest man alive at that time. It was the hours and hours of sacrifice, dedication, practice, coaching, diet, everything that went into it. So in the same way, when Paul says offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, a lot of times people look at the Christian and they'll say, wow, look at her, look at him. But the Christian experience begins with a decision. That's once and for all when you're saved. But then it develops into a process. Day by day, surrendering the totality of yourself to Christ. So how do we do that? How do we offer our bodies as a sacrifice? Number two, the second action, dance to the beat of a different drum. Do we have any dancers in the room? People like to dance when no one's watching. All right, a few of you. We do that all the time at my house. We play Christian music and the kids go crazy and it's fun. Maybe I'll, I'll send you a video of it one day. It's kind of humorous. So, verse 2. It says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So, in other words, this, this whole thing, don't be conformed, but be transformed, it's the idea of you are being acted upon by an outside agent. And if you let the world pressure you, you will be formed into the shape of the world. But if you allow God to shape and mold you, you'll be shaped by God and his word. 
you will be acted upon by something or someone. So here's the imagery here. If you want to be a living sacrifice, if you want to live a life that God's going to shape and mold, a Romans 12 Christian type of life, you can't allow the world to continually fill your mind. Because it will produce depression, discouragement, disillusionment. We live in a bad news world. I've come to give you good news today in a bad news world. That when you conform, not to this world, but you're transformed by God's word. Notice how his will is. It's good, it's pleasing, and it's perfect. So the next time you think, I would surrender my life to Christ, but that would mean I ended up in Africa eating bugs. Or that mean I'd be like one of these crazy people that runs around the church. Listen, that may be you, but that's probably not you. It depends on your personality. But God's will is good, it's pleasing, perfect. So God is the major actor. And we are being acted upon. God is working in us and through us. But we are the co-actor. So how do we allow God to renew our minds? This isn't on your listening, God, but four things to write down. Practical tips for daily renewal. Your part, as God does his part, start each day off with time with God, number one. Even if you're not a morning person, some of you are night owls, that's okay. When you get out of bed, even though you're dead tired, say, God, I give this day to you. I'm reporting for duty, Timothy, sir. Uh, Whatever that looks like for you, give yourself to God each day. It's hard to pray, give us this day our daily bread at the end of the day, right? After the day's already gone, give the day to God each day. Number two, practical tip, make Bible study a daily spiritual discipline. Bible study. I remember I was about 14, and I went away to one of these Christian camps. It was at the Wilds in Brevard, North Carolina, a beautiful camp. And they did something... I'm, I'm shocking to say either I didn't pay attention in church or I don't remember it. But they, they, they did something I'd never seen before is they got us alone and they gave us this journal. And you had your Bible and they said, I want you to do a daily quiet time. And I'm like, what is a quiet time? And they said, you've got to read the Bible, pray, listen to God, write down your prayer. And I hate to say this, but I never remember doing that all my life. I may, I've read the Bible occasionally, but it was mainly on Sunday and Wednesday, like the average Christian. So once I did this quiet time... The Lord began to speak to me, and I made a commitment from then on, 14 years old. I said, from this day forward, I'm going to read the Bible every day. I'm 36 years old today, and to my knowledge, I don't remember ever skipping a day. And the Lord has used that to renew my mind. Some of you may need to make that commitment. Starting today, even if it's a verse a day, I'm going to read God's Word every day. That's how you renew your mind. The third tip is change prayer from talking to God like your list to communing with God. We talked about this last week. Many of us prayer, and this is, I'm guilty of this, you're going down this long list. On my prayer list, I have so many items, it's unbelievable. Like just to go through the list takes me a certain amount of time. So I'm having to discipline myself to listen. If I called you up on the phone and I rambled the whole time, and at the very end I said, how are you? And it was time to go, how would you feel about that? You'd be like, man, Timothy is narcissistical. He only wants to talk about himself. Well, what do we do when we talk to God? We ramble off, but God wants to speak to us through the word and through prayer, and we're not listening. And all the saints said, ouch, Lord help us. The fourth practical tip of renewal is get active in the life of the church. We live in a world where everyone talks about physical fitness, eating healthy. All that's great. I recommend it. But what about spiritual fitness? What about getting active? If you're not serving, you're swerving. Did you know that God created you to be active in your Christian faith? And if you develop those spiritual muscles, you're going to grow in your faith. 
This time of year, I love watching beautiful butterflies fly around. Am I the only one? You see these butterflies. And what fascinates me, just a few weeks ago, my, my, my children were looking around at these ugly green caterpillars. And these same caterpillars, just a few weeks later, are these butterflies that are soaring like eagles. And I'm like, how did that ugly thing become this flying butterfly? And it's like this. If you allow the world to squeeze you into its mold, you will stay a caterpillar. You'll look like everyone else, this green insect crawling around, eating the dust of the world. But if you allow God to transform you, a metamorphosis takes place. And all of a sudden you begin to fly and soar. And there's colors that come out of you that you didn't know that you had. When God moves inside of you, he brings gifts inside of you. And he transforms you. Amen? All right, number three. The third action of a Romans 12 Christian. Kick pride to the curve. Kick pride to the curve. Look at verse 3. Paul says, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one the measure of faith. So here's, here's a remedy for pride. Realize where all the good things in your life came from. If you got it, and it's good, God gave it. Anything good. It came from God's heart to your home. That's the beauty. So if you realize that the blessings on your life are from God, and he's the resource behind it, it doesn't allow you to get boastful of pride because you realize he gave it and he can take it away. And some of you will say, well, pastor, you don't realize I work 60 hours a week. I started my own company. Uh, you know, I've made the wealth. Well, guess who gave you the intelligence? Guess who gave you the ability? If God's not breathing out, you're not breathing in. So everything good comes from him. So on one extreme, you have the arrogant pride. On the other extreme, we talked about a few weeks ago, you have the false humility. You don't want to think too lowly of yourself. Because God loves you so much, he doesn't want you to think lowly of like, woe is me, false humility. As Max Lucado once said, if God had a fridge, your picture would be on his fridge. So don't, don't think too lowly of yourself. Think of yourself in sober judgment. Notice it says, as God has dealt each a measure of faith. In other words, you each have a certain measure of faith. Each of your measurements different. So with the measurement God has given, you use it. So that brings us to the fourth action of the Romans 12 Christian. And you think about community. Imagine how community would thrive if we practice this. Number four, embrace your place in the body of Christ. Embrace your place in the body of Christ. Look at verse four. It says, for we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. In other words, I belong to you and you belong to me. We're all part of one body. So guess what happens if you as a part of the body don't show up and you're not using your part? What's going to happen to the body? It will never be all that God created it to be. Imagine if your right lung decides to deflate and not inflate again. You would be in major issues, would rush you to the ER. Imagine if your left leg decided to stop working. What would happen? You would fall flat. In the same way, the church, and this is not just, this church is a church is worldwide with a few exceptions. We suffer from the 20-80 rule. Does anybody remember what the 20-80 rule is? 20% of people do 80% of everything. The giving, the serving, the loving, the encouraging, everything. 
So imagine if your body, your physical body, imagine if just 20% of your body function and 80% was non-functioning. What would that do to your physical body? Can you imagine what it does to the church? The only reason why the church still comes and grows is God's grace overcomes even our weaknesses. So I want to encourage you, whatever gift God has given you, use it for the body. Look what Paul says in the next verse. It says, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. If it's ministry, let us use it to ministering. If it's teaching in teaching. If it's exhorting in exhortation. If it's giving with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So he lists several gifts. And there's other gifts lists like 1 Corinthians 12 and other passages in the Bible. But it says... The prophet, that's someone who proclaims God's word boldly. He or she should proclaim the truth with the faith that God gives. Someone that's a teacher, they should teach with the ability that God gives them. Someone that's merciful. By the way, does anyone have the gift of mercy in here? You can raise your hand. We love you guys. We need you. Because the merciful person is kind of like reminds me of my mama. And no matter what I do, mama's going to still love me. I know Timothy did that, but you don't know Timothy. He's just having a bad day. You know, that's, that's the mamas of the church. No matter, no matter who comes in, mercy is not treating them as they deserve. What, what about the gift of giving? You're like, aren't we all to be tithing, giving? Absolutely. But the gift of giving is a unique gift. This is a gift that, I mean, there's many layers, but one layer is this is someone that knows how to make a lot of money and give a lot of money to the kingdom. That's the gift of giving. Some of you are like, I wish I had that gift. If God knows he can get it through you, he can get it to you. And I think that God has really blessed many people with this gift. I've been associated with a lot of businessmen in my life. And I'll tell you one story. This one gentleman, he's in heaven now. His name is Bill. But he retired in his 50s. He was a multi-millionaire, very successful. But Bill was just a layman in the church. He didn't go to my church, but... Every year, he would get 30 pastors and send them to training, church planning, equipping, and he would just encourage them. He wasn't a pastor. He was a layman. But part of his gift was, I'm going to pour into these 30 pastors every year. And even though Bill's in heaven, myself included, the 30 pastors, etc., we're still preaching and teaching partly because of Bill invested in us. That's the gift of giving. And it says leadership. What is leadership? Leadership is someone that can take you from point A to point B. It's taking you to God's preferred future in your life. So in the church, we need capable leaders that will step up. Now, I wasn't going to share this, but the Wednesday night crowd told me to share this. So we were talking about gifts. Now, you need to share this Sunday morning, so I'm going to share it. And um, sometimes on Sunday morning... If you knew what was behind the scenes with their volunteers, many of them are doing multiple roles. I'll give you an example. Paul, he didn't know I was going to use him as an example. He's sitting in the back. But Paul in the morning is brewing coffee. He's greeting. He's ushering. He's up here loving, greeting, ushering all multiple roles. Should Paul have to do multiple roles in the church? But he's doing it because he's filling the gap. And he's doing it because he loves the church. I'll give you an example from my morning, and this is not, you know, martyr syndrome, just an example. We're ha- all the volunteers are having to step up because there's needs. This morning, I was uh, a tech guy, I was a greeter, uh, I worked behind the coffee bar, and then I pulled out a sermon all, the, all this morning. <laughs> it was like, and I do it joyfully, but we're all having to fill in because the body 
there, there's not everyone functioning to the fullest capacity. So, church, we need you. So some, some may say, well, my gift is not really that needed. I, I, I can only do this. I can only do that. Let me, let me read you about something. Many of you remember about President Reagan when he was shot in 1981. And he was hospitalized for several weeks. But the interesting thing in 1981 is the country kept going on. There wasn't any shutdown on the government. It kept going on. But you guys remember, this is several years back, but in Philadelphia there was a trash protest where they stopped picking up the trash. You guys remember, here's a picture of that. Whenever the garbage men decided to go on strike, it literally shut down the city in many, many regards. What would happen across the U.S. if all our garbage men and women stopped working for three weeks? So which is more important, the president or the garbage collector? They're both important, right? So never underestimate your gift. You may not realize this, but you may be the one key that's keeping this church from taking off like a rocket ship for the kingdom. If your gift was used, whatever that gift is, we read several, um, this church could take off to new heights to reach more people, to change lives, and God could be glorified through it. Amen. So you look on your listening, God, this is by Rick Warren. I thought it was really good. And this is a preview for Wednesday night. I'm finishing up the gift series. But Rick Warren gives us 10 truths about spiritual gifts while we're talking about gifts. And we don't have time to go in all the scriptures, but this is for you to take home. Only believers have spiritual gifts. Every Christian has at least how many gifts? At least one. No one receives all of the gifts. And that's I talked about this a few weeks. So that's why it's important. You need the church. I don't know how many people I say, well, I don't really need the church. I can worship God in my living room. You can. But listen, that would mean that you would have to have all the gifts to be a fully thriving church. And you don't have all the gifts. Number four, no single gift is given to everyone. And I need to pause on that for a moment. How many of you have ever heard of denominations that taught if you didn't receive this gift, you're not spiritual? That's not true teaching. Everyone has a gift, different gift. So just because you can't lead like this guy or this girl over here doesn't mean you're not spiritual. And by the way, all the gifts are the grace gifts anyways. You didn't earn or deserve them. So don't ever have gift envy or I wish I could be like this person or because I'm not this, I'm not spiritual. That's not true. Which brings us to the fifth point Rick Warren gives us. You can't earn or work for a spiritual gift. It's a grace gift. You can't earn it. Number six, who decides what gift I get? The Holy Spirit does. He decides. Number seven, the gifts that I'm given as far as the context of this world, they're permanent. It says the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. But let's put this in context. If you have the gift of mercy, won't you have that gift all your life? Yeah. But if you lose your testimony, can you not have the platform to practice the gift of mercy? Um, take, take a pastor, for example. If a pastor is preaching, do you think he will always have the gift of preaching? Yeah, he'll have it, but can he lose the opportunity of his character? So you'll still have the gift, but depending on how you live your life, you may lose the opportunity to practice that gift. Number eight, I'm to develop the gift that God gives me. I'm to develop it. It's a grace gift, but you know you can get stronger in your gift, just like a muscle exercising. For those of you who have the gift of mercy, don't you think you can become more merciful? For those of you who are Sunday school teachers, don't you think you'd be a better teacher with practice? Every gift, even though it's given, you can still develop it. Number nine, this is an ouch one. It's a sin to waste the gifts that God gives me. Ouch. So if I'm not using my God-given gift, I'm missing the mark for why he gave it to me. 
And I love number 10 that Warren gives us. Using my gifts honors God and expands me. It honors God and expands me. John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will what? Bear forth much fruit. Let's move on to the fifth action. We talked about gifts. The fifth action is love with authenticity and purity. Think about this. How many of you want to be in community with fake people? Anybody? How many of you want to be in a community with people that are going to stab you in the back and gossip about you at the water cooler? Absolutely nobody, right? Look at verse 9. It says, let love be without hypocrisy. Isn't it horrific to have someone say, I love you, brother, I love you, sister, and then they go stab you in the back? So Paul says, listen, if you're really going to love people, you can't love like the world because, remember, you're being transformed by the renewing of your mind. You've got to love like Jesus loved. Jesus was never hypocritical. If he said, I love you, he showed it. He took it to the cross. Let love be without hypocrisy. It says, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. So in other words, people will say, you know, I I would be in community, but what if the people don't like me? What if they don't like who I am? Listen, people accept you just the way you are. Well, what if I don't know the Bible? That's okay. That's why you're in a group. What if I don't have the right answers? Listen, you you don't have to have the, you just got to have an open heart. Well, what if someone calls on me to pray? Listen, you don't have to pray out loud if you don't feel comfortable. Come just as you are. And that's the way this church is. So I love how he says, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. In other words, as your talk begins to line up with your walk, you will begin to hate those things that are not good for you. And you'll begin to fall in love with things that are good for you. I find it interesting, and this goes back to times when my early young adult stage where I would be working at a restaurant or whatever, and it would be interesting that there'd be other Christians that if you didn't kind of know a little bit about the world or fit in with the world, they'd think you were strange, and they would think you're not relatable. And the, the, the issue, I think, is is that they thought that you could love a little good and you can also love a little bad. But the problem with that, folks, is it goes back to Genesis 3. The fall of humanity came with God is holding back. They had the knowledge of good, but not the knowledge of evil. Listen, we don't need the knowledge of evil. So don't ever let Satan tempt you to think you need to learn so you won't be naive. That's the same lie he's holding over us. So love with authenticity and purity. And it says, be kindly affectionate, verse 10, to one another with brotherly love. What would happen, we say church is like a family. What would happen if we loved our church family like our own family? Wouldn't that be a different place? Wouldn't that be a place where relationships thrived? Number six, the sixth action of the Romans 12 Christian. Serve others with excellence. How many of you, out of curiosity, have ever been to a restaurant where you had to wait like 30 minutes or longer? And you got the food and the food wasn't that good. And Anybody ever experienced that? Well, I went to a restaurant. This was a few months ago. I went down to Columbia, South Carolina for school. And I went to an Outback Steakhouse, and I'm a big fan of Outback. They're, they're typically good. After 30 minutes, I was still waiting on my food, and the waitress had not even, finally she forgot I was even there. And she came up to me and said, I'm so sorry, sir. Uh, somehow I forgot to put in your order. It was lost. And, and I'm like, Ugh. And I was kind of in a rush, and I'm there to study. And here I am hanging out Outback with, with you know, the waitress forgetting the food. And, and it just made me think that 
we got to do things with excellence. We all make mistakes. But the church should be the place that we give our best efforts. Think about it like this. When you go to a restaurant, you want to be served and you want to be appreciated. But when you come to a church, should the excellence level be any lower? I think it should be higher. Because we are, we are giving out the gospel of Jesus Christ to every man, woman, and child. And we want to give everything we got, whether it be the music, the message, the classes, whatever. We want to give it as unto the Lord with everything we've got. Amen. So notice it says, in honoring, give preference one to another. So in other words, we've got to put others first. It's no longer me first. It's others first. It says, not lacking in diligence. What would happen if we practice what, I, what I'm newly calling a holy hustle? Diligent. You know, many of you own businesses and you talk about hustling. Should the church be less hustling than the world or should we be more hustling? I remember my parents, uh, this is when I was pastoring in another county, they were looking for a church. And um, I told them about a church that was really good. They had a great pastor. He was a really good Bible teacher. So they visited his church. They filled out one of those connection cards, and, um, and I, they didn't call, the pastor didn't call. And I, I told the pastor, I was like, listen, my parents, if you call and reach out to them, they're going to start coming to your church. They never got a phone call, and my parents stopped going to that church because it was like, and eventually the guy's church closed down. And I'm like, great guy, but just didn't have the hustle, didn't, didn't have that diligence. So in Christ... We've got to practice this diligence because we're dealing with souls. We're dealing with eternity. Many of you have heard of David Livingston. Ravi Zacharias tells us about him. And he said in one of his stories that he was recounting Livingston's life. You know, he walked through Africa. And I could not believe this. You know how many miles he walked through Africa? 29,000 miles on foot to share the gospel. 29,000. His wife died early in his ministry. And he faced opposition even from his own Christian brethren. And I want to read to you a prayer. And when you think about diligence, I want you to think of David Livingston. He said, send me anywhere, God, only go with me. Lay any burden on me, only sustain me. Sever any ties, but the tie that binds me to your service and to your heart. You know, we, we may not walk 29,000 miles, but maybe we walk across the, the aisle, say hello, Maybe we walk across the street and share the love of Christ with someone. Amen. Let's continue on in this spirit, this scripture. It says fervent in spirit. How many of you are excited when people are excited to see you? I think we all are, right? We want to be celebrated, not tolerated. So what would happen at Arden First if all of us were like Betty Moody? We're just excited, fervent in spirit. And some of you are like, well, Timothy, I'm an introvert, and I don't really show it. That's okay. Listen, we show it differently, but all of us should have a fire inside of us. Jeremiah said, there's a fire in my bones. Even if you express it in your own way, if someone as big as God and his word is so living is inside of you, it should come out in different ways. And we're all going to express it differently. You can thank me later, Betty. <laughs> and then it says, serving the Lord. Why is that important? Why is that important? Well, here's the reason why. When you're serving, you've got to know who you're serving. Ultimately, you're not serving me. Ultimately, you're not serving the church. Ultimately, you're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's why that's important. Lori and I, in our ministry, we've had people say, you know, I'm, I'm here to serve you, Pastor. And I'm like, no, you're not. The reason why 
If you're serving me, guess what happens when you get disappointed in me? You're out of here. Guess what happens when I don't thank you for your service? You're disappointed. But if you're serving Jesus, the only thing that you're living for, his glory, and at the end of your life you stand before him and he says, well done, thou good and faithful service. servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. See, you don't need a pat on the back from me. That's very small. What you want is Jesus' thumbs up because it's an eternal one. So Paul says you are serving the Lord. And as you serve the Lord, obviously you serve people, but the, the focus is on him. All right, let's continue on. Rejoicing in hope. As Christians, we should be the most joyful people on planet Earth, not because we're happy. And by the way, the Bible never promises happiness. I'm sorry to tell you that, but it doesn't. Happiness is based upon circumstances. And many of the apostles died martyrs' death, and they weren't happy in that moment. But you are promised joy, because joy is a byproduct of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. So if, you're, if your mentality was, I just want to be happy, I want you to change it to, I just want to be full of God's presence, full of His joy. And it says, patient in tribulation. How many of us, when the going gets tough, we want to quit? I want you to realize that Jesus, this says in the book of Hebrews, that Jesus, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus didn't give up. So if we are following him, if we're a Romans 12 Christian, even when persecution breaks out, and by the way, we're not promised exemption from persecution in this world. It could happen in America. If it does happen, remember Romans 12. We have to persevere and be patient in tribulation. Another thing is we've got to keep praying, even when we don't receive results. A lot of times we want to give up, and I'm not going to give the name of the person, but I was encouraged this week. A lady in the church said, Timothy, I've been praying for 15 years for my family, and I haven't seen any results, but guess what? I'm still praying. And that's what we need. We need a little tenacity. Folks, I'll never forget this definition of a tenacity. This is not original with me, but this pastor said tenacity, or imagine a pit bull on a dish rag not letting go. We need that bulldog tenacity when it comes to faith. I'm not going to let go. I'm going to keep on keeping on. And notice it says distributing to the needs of the saints. We see in the early church, when you think about community, when someone lacked, people hustled and they helped and they, they were there for people. So you're like, what does that look like? Well, in different churches it looks like differently. But let's say I have five cars and I see a single mom that needs a car. God may, the Holy Spirit may lead me to give one of my cars to the single mom. And that's okay. It's spirit-led giving. So if you have more than enough and someone has less than enough, if the Lord leads you, don't hesitate to say, God, it's yours anyways. You can't outgive God. Always remember that God is always going to be more generous than you. You can try to outgive him. It, it won't work. He will always be more generous. And the next thing he says, given to hospitality. You guys want to hear a secret how this church would explode with growth? If all of us began to be more hospitable and open up our homes to people. Imagine what it'd be like if, 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 if you guys met in each other's homes and spent time together. And, and you're like, well, Timothy, that's not culturally relevant. Well, it may not be. But what if we go back to the hospitality of the Bible? We show love. Even to strangers. That's a foreign concept. You know, I think the bars and the clubs in Asheville would have a lot less attendance if people found community in the church instead. People are longing for connection. And they're not finding it, so they're going to alternative sources. 
So given the hospitality. Number seven, the seventh action of the Romans 12 Christian. If you are being challenged and or blessed, say amen. Or ouch. <laughs> Number seven, add value to everyone in your pathway. Did you know that because Jesus values you, you can value others, even if they're not nice, even if they're having a bad day? Look at verse 14. It says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Here's the thing, because I'm blessed to be a blessing, even if you curse me, you're not going to take the blessing away from me. Even if you're not nice, I'm still going to be nice. You know why? I'm not reacting. I'm responding with the grace of God. And I know that's hard. It's easier said than done. But realize that you are blessed so that when others try to curse you, you bless them in return. Because you're acting with the grace of God on your life. Verse 15, it says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So here's the idea behind that. If someone just got a job promotion, you're to throw a party with them. You're to celebrate. If someone just lost a spouse, you're to enter that time of grieving with them. This is true community. When you can enter into someone's shoes and feel what they're feeling. Not just feel sorry for them, but to feel with them. And then it says, have the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with who? The humble or the lowly. Do not be wise in your own opinion. See, here's the beautiful thing about community. At this church, we can have a homeless person and a wealthy person all in the same room. You know why? We're all the same. We come together, worship the same Lord. And by the way, we can all learn from each other. You can learn from the garbage collector as well as, as, well as the CEO. The footing is level at the cross. So we love each other, we learn from each other, and we open up to each other. Let me read you a story. This is before my time, but May 2nd, 1962, the lady's name was Gladys Kidd. And she played this article in the San Francisco Times. And it was a San Francisco examiner. And I want to read to you what she wrote in this article. It's very brief. I do not want my husband to die in a gas chamber for a crime he did not commit. I will therefore offer my services for 10 years as a cook, maid, or housekeeper or to, to any leading attorney who will defend me and bring about his vindication. So she said, my husband, here's a picture of her, by the way. My husband has been falsely accused. He's innocent. And if any attorney will step up, guess what? I will serve him as his maid for 10 years. So guess what? An attorney took her up on her offer. His name was Vincent Hallinan. He was one of San Francisco's best lawyers. And he defended this lady's husband whom he believed was innocent. And guess what? He got him out of the gas chamber. He was released. So Gladys, according to her word, went to the lawyer, to the attorney, and said, I'm ready to report for the next 10 years. And he said, ma'am, it's okay. It was enough joy and satisfaction releasing a man that wasn't guilty, that was innocent. And you can spend time with your husband. And as I heard Gladys' story, which blew me away, I wasn't, never heard that story before, it makes me think of the reaction we should have when we realize what Jesus has done for us. He gave his whole life. So every reaction, back to verse 1, is I want to give my whole life as a living sacrifice because of all that Jesus has done for me. Amen. All right, finally, and we will complete a record, a whole chapter on a Sunday morning. Number eight, the, the last action step of a Romans 12 Christian is keep doing the next right thing. Keep, keep doing the next right thing. 
And this phraseology I borrowed from my father-in-law, John Talmadge, who is still going through rehab, so continue to pray for him. But his saying is, keep doing the next right thing. Keep doing it. Look at verse 17. It says, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. I love how it says, if it's possible, as much as depends upon you. In other words, it's not always possible to have peace with people. They may reject it, but you do what you can do. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Rather, give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, what? Feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So to summarize this scripture, you have three, I call it backs. When someone does you wrong, you can do three backs. The first one is payback. You return evil with evil. The second one is drawback. Be overcome by evil. This is like you're a doormat. You know, people run over you all the time and you're like, well, I'm just turning the other cheek and you just feel defeated all the time. Well, the Bible says don't be overcome by evil. The third one is comeback. Instead of payback, instead of drawback, comeback is overcome evil with good. So do good. We're like, well, how can I do if someone's been so mean to me, how can I do something nice in return? Listen, you don't operate out of your own resources. It's God inside of you. And because Jesus loved those who didn't love him back, you can do the same. And you're like, well, I can't. Well, you, you're right, you can't. But God can through you if you will present your body as a living sacrifice. So to summarize this, let's review the eight truths of the Romans 12 Christian. In the context of community, imagine what our church would look like if we did these things. Live your life as a living sacrifice. Dance to the beat of a different drum. Don't dance to the world's beat anymore. Be, be, be transformed. Number three, kick pride to the curve. Embrace your place in the body of Christ. We all have a gift. If you don't use your gift, we're, we're going to have to make up for it. We need you. Number five, love with authenticity and purity. We want to be a church that's real. It's okay not to be okay, but God's going to change that. Come just as you are and allow him to change you. Serve others with excellence. The church should be the most excellent place. We're given all we got for the gospel so that every man, woman, and child will have a chance to have a relationship with God through Christ. Number seven, add value to everyone in your pathway. And number eight, keep on doing the next right thing. So if we could summarize this chapter in a sentence, it would be something like this. The greatest gift that you could give One of the greatest gifts, other than obviously Christ in someone's life, but one of the greatest gifts you can give is you, your personal presence. How are you doing with Romans 12? Are you a Romans 12 Christian? Do you want to become one? If so, I invite you as we pray. Father, I know as we read this passage, it's all ouches and Lord help help me. None of us are where we should be. I realize that. And God, as we pray... My prayer for the congregation today is on a level of 1 to 10, 10 being perfect, 1, a new believer. If we're a level 4, help us to say, God, help me go to the next level. Help me to go to a level 5 of loving more, of serving more. Right now as we pray with no one looking around, I want to talk to the believers first.
I want to ask you the question, have you ever surrendered your life to Christ fully? Yeah, Jesus is Savior, but is he Lord? Have you said, God, here's a blank check, write what you want? If you've never done that, I want to give you a chance right where you're sitting, just in the quietness of the seat around you, say, Jesus, I know you as my Savior, but I've never surrendered to you as Lord. I've never said, God, here's my time, here's my abilities, here's my resources, here's all of me. I'm just going to use it as you lead me. So from this day forward, Jesus, you have all of me. I'm not going to hold anything back. Forgive me for holding back. As the believers continue to pray, if there's one here today that came in, and we love you so much, you've never accepted Jesus as Savior. That's your first step. Right where you're at, just say, Jesus, I know I need you in my life. I want to become a Christian today. Because I believe, Jesus, that you died on the cross, you were buried, and you rose again on the third day to new life. And Jesus, I want a new life. So I ask that you would come into my life. I repent of my sins and pray for your forgiveness. I make you my Lord and my Savior. Friend, if you prayed that prayer, we want to welcome you to the family of God. Father, we want to be a Romans 12 Christian in this church community. So please help us. Please forgive us where we fall short. And thank you, Lord, where we do fall short. Your grace fills in the gaps. It's in the name above all names. Jesus, we pray. And all God's children said, amen. This time we're going to stand.